Okay, we're in Psalm 18 tonight, and this is by far the longest psalm that we've tried to look at. And we will see if we can do it in one class. We definitely want to try that. Psalm 18 is almost verbatim the same as 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22, after... David's victories over four Philistine giants are recorded. The Bible records this psalm. One thing that's very interesting to me is what is found in the title of Psalm 18 for the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of the song in the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul and he said that statement that's the heading of Psalm 18 is in the text of 2 Samuel 22 verse 1 should we take the titles to these psalms seriously to me that's a pretty strong argument that we should because this is part of the inspired text in 2 Samuel chapter 22. But I think in context, particularly you see this in 2 Samuel. Like I said, in 2 Samuel 21, David and his men and their victories over four Philistine giants. In 2 Samuel 23, you have a list of David's mighty men. And right between them is this poem. Behind the exploits of David's most heroic soldiers in their greatest battles were God. God was the cause of it all. He was the one strengthening them and holding them up. Now, the outline of Psalm 18, I don't know if this is the best, but we will see what we can do do with it. The first six verses... First six verses of Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help came, crying for help before him, came into his ears. Now, feel free to, tonight, if you've got a significant translation difference, uh, feel free to call attention to it. It is common for the songs to begin on a note of thanksgiving or to begin on a note of praise. But it's very rare for a psalm to begin by describing love. I love you, O Lord. Psalm 116 uh, begins in a similar way. Psalm 116 uh, in verse 1 says, I love the Lord because He hears my voice. 
Here, I love you, O Lord. And he says, you are my strength. He uses about eight or nine terms here in verses 1 and 2 to describe his relationship with the Lord. I think all of them point to the fact that his security is in God. He describes the Lord as my strength. He describes him in verse 2 as my rock my fortress and my deliverer. He says, my God, my rock. The second rock is different than the first word for rock. That second word for rock is going to be used later in verse 31. Who is a rock except our God? And it will be used again in verse 46. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock. So God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now, these are all phrases, or most of these are phrases that are used frequently in the Psalms to describe the psalmist relationship with God. But you see that he piles up terms here just to emphasize that God is his everything. God is his shield and defender. God is his fortress and deliverer. God is all of these things. And God has shown that through the psalmist's experience as well. In verse 3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Sometimes he describes God's salvation. Sometimes he describes his distress, uh, he describes his distress, he describes God's deliverance, and then he bursts forth in praise. But in verse 4, he's explaining some of the seriousness of his circumstance. The cords of death encompassed me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. These terms, and there's a very similar list of terms, what's found in verses 4 and 5, used in Psalm 116, verse 3. Psalm 116, verse 3, if you want to make a, a reference to that, a side note to that. But it's almost as if death has its tentacles around him, like it's some kind of a giant uh, sea creature pulling him down to destruction. The cords of death encompassed me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. And the snares of death confronted me. But while death is pulling him down to destruction, he says in verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into my ears. So he describes his distress in verses 4 and 5. He describes God as deliverer in verse 2. But in both cases, in verses 3 and 6, in both sections, he describes calling out to God in distress and God delivering him or rescuing him. Now, What thoughts do you have? What questions do you want to ask about those verses? Anything? Some some of the verses 
some of his language reminds me of Jonah. Well, it, it does. You would think that this is a sea adventure. And, and notice what he uses in verse 16. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. By the way, when you think of somebody being drawn out of the water, what biblical character do you think of? They called, yeah, they called him Moses because he was drawn out of water in Exodus 2 verse 10. And yet, it seems to be describing a king involved in battle. It does sound like Jonah. It does sound like someone drowning. He uses that language of drowning quite frequently. But he's talking about a battle on dry land. And you see that Biblical poetry, just like modern day poetry, delights in images and metaphors that may not be literal in describing the crisis. And I think it's the same thing, same thing here. Verses, Brad, did you have a thought? Yeah, I was just going to ask, um, on the occasions where the texts are different between uh, Samuel, 2 Samuel 22. Um, is there, do you have any insight into like what, what is going on there or? No, I do not. Um, I do not have anything profound. I'll tell you some, there are some slight differences. Some would say 2 Samuel 22 is probably older. I, I don't know that you can't even, it's just amazing to me. How even though this is in the context of the life of David, and even though this psalm says a psalm of David, there are, there are so few people, there are so many people who don't take claims to David's authorship seriously at all. I mean, that just is amazing to me. But some have suggested, and this is only a possibility, Brad, that one of these versions represents more of a southern version as Judah used this psalm after military victories in battle and one of them some more northern victory northern flavor as after Israel and Judah divided of how they would use some of these in battle that is a possibility that that I I don't know I just I throw that out as one possibility to make you act like I'm ask, answering your question, but uh, really, I, and, and that's that is a that is a theory, but but whether it holds any water, I really haven't tried to look at that. Yeah, I know I've, I've seen I compared a lot of the text from Chronicles to Kings, um, and just to see that some of them are word for word quotations, yeah. and then others. Uh, are word for word except for little bits here and there and sometimes those bits almost give you like a little bit of a hint of an agenda or oh absolutely or the kind of context that the chronicler is, is coming from yeah absolutely and you see the same thing with the gospels you know as they emphasize unique elements of the life of Jesus it, it's a good question I just don't have a, a great answer to it but in verses 7 through 15, the Lord's dramatic intervention is described. Here, there is no first person singular. The, the speaker is not emphasized. The enemies are not emphasized. There is a reference in verse 14 to them. But 
the focus is on God and his dramatic intervention as, like Boyd said earlier it seems like he's drowning but God is going to come to the rescue and this is the God who intervenes to to make a dramatic rescue and I want to ask you what are the images that this calls forth in verse 7 then the earth shook and quaked and the foundations of the mountain were mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured coals were kindled by it he bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness uh, under his feet he rode upon cherub cherub and flew he sped upon the wings of the wind he made darkness his hiding place his canopy around him darkness of waters thick clouds of skies from the brightness before him passed thick clouds hailstones and coals of fire the Lord also thundered in the heavens and the most high uttered his voice hailstones and coals of fire he sent out his arrows and scattered them his lightning flashed Flashes in abundance and routed them. Then the channels of the water appeared, the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Now, when you read those words, what images are called forth? And I don't know if I asked that in a helpful way. Exodus 19, Mount Sinai. Okay, it sounds a lot like Mount Sinai, particularly when you have the statement of verse 7. The mountains were trembling. So it sounds like Mount Sinai. But the whole picture, how would we describe the natural phenomena that, that sounds like? It's a storm. Sounds like, it sounds like, part of it sounds like a storm. When you get to verse 9, verse 7 sounds more like an earthquake. Or, uh, and then in verse 8, even maybe like a volcano. But all of these kind of pictures of an earthquake, a volcano, and a storm are all kind of intermingled here to show us the power of this great God. And all of these things unleash incredible power a a stat i can remember hearing years ago and this was this was around 1990 and you may remember there was a major earthquake in the oakland san francisco area and there had been a hurricane hugo along the coast in south carolina and all of these had done damage but i can remember hearing a report that said in eight to ten seconds of that earthquake when it was at its heart it unleashed as much power as was unleashed in two weeks of the hurricane now if you've been a part of seeing a hurricane blow by and I've never been a part of anything but a category one when it was very very dim and and insignificant as far as causing real damage and yet there's a lot of power involved in that all of this just demonstrates 
the power of God and should lead us to stand in awe of God. But but there are references, like John said, verse 7, kind of brings back to our minds Mount Sinai, where the earth shook. And the Bible tells us that the smoke went up in verse uh, eight, it mentions smoke here. The smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace. So that it invokes that image. But also look at verse 15. At verse 15, At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, at the blast of God's nostrils, you remember that's the way the adventure at the Red Sea is described. In Exodus 15 verse 8. So he is invoking images of Israel's past at the Red Sea, at Mount Sinai, in all these kind of places to remind them of the God that they have described as my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. Who is this rock, this fortress, this deliverer, this God before whom all the earth shook and quake, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling. Smoke goes out of his nostrils. He comes down from the heavens. And notice how in this passage God both reveals himself and conceals himself. Verse 9 and verse 11 both make reference to the darkness. He made darkness his hiding place. God is associated with light, but God's associated with darkness because we can't see Him in all His glory. But also involved in this is a description of God in terms that Israelites' neighbors would have understood. For example, in Canaanite drawings and pictures, Baal, their God, is viewed as riding on the clouds. But it is not Baal who rides on the clouds. It is Yahweh who is the rider of the clouds and who controls the storm. The things that the other nations of the ancient Near East attributed to their gods, the Bible attributes to Yahweh. He is the one who rode upon a cherub. And this uses the term cherub singular. You eventually, often you have the term cherubim or uh, cherubim. And that word is often associated with God's holiness. You remember they guarded the entrance to the tree of life in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 24. Uh, in Exodus chapter 25, they are associated with the with the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. He rode upon the cherubim and flew. He sped upon the wings of the wind. So all of this, just to demonstrate the power, the glory, the might, the strength of this God. And it is a terrifying picture in many ways. When you think about a volcano coming, an earthquake coming, or a violent storm coming, it's a terrifying picture, but remember, he has viewed God as his security. It is great to have one this powerful on our side, isn't it? One who can deliver, one who can rescue, one who can save. 
And in verses 19 through 16 through 19, he goes back to this thought of God rescuing him. He talked about calling out to God in the midst of his crisis in verse 3 and in verse 6. And then in verse 16, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. So God drew him out of the many waters. His enemy is described in verse 17 as being strong, but he is not too strong for Yahweh, is he? He's not too strong for him. What thoughts do you have right there? Verses 16 through 19 about this awesome God who saves him from his crisis and delivers him from his trouble. John? That's uh, that's quite a response to the psalm's prayer, is it not? Yes, that's right. That is quite a response. I, I, I need to think more like that. That when I call out to God, He's hearing and He's responding in some way. Yes, and and I think if we always... And this is true of so many subjects, I guess. But if we always kept before us and we're not deceived by what we see about the power of God... That in itself is sufficient to answer all our needs. If we always kept that before us and and truly um, could overlook, we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't always see those things clearly, but uh, but um, it would be an answer to our Christ. You had another question. Well, you know, David calls out to God. God answers, but. Do we have a recording other than Nathan coming to him with a direct message from God that, okay, I've heard you, this is what I'm going to do. But rather, he sees events in his life and he connects the dots and concludes with language like this. Mm -hmm. Well, he is quick to... Seek God in the midst of a crisis in battle. And he is quick to give his victories, credit for his victories to God. Can you keep a finger in Psalm 18? And let's look at a couple of passages in Psalm, in 2 Samuel chapter, 2 Samuel 5. Isaiah, could I ask you to, I know we don't have many cups out there, but to get me a drink. So, this is the way, people, you go about Preparing somebody to be a deacon one day, and so there's some water. But see, but how's Isaiah going to prepare? How's Isaiah going to prepare to be a deacon? It's a good thing because there's no water fountain. There's no water fountain. 
Oh, that I could drink from the waters of Bethlehem. Oh. We'll see who will brave, brave the enemy lines and go get it. But in Second Samuel five, Second Samuel five, um, one of the things that really distinguishes David from Saul is when the Philist and the Philistines come out in both of these cases to meet. David, but in Second Samuel five and verse nineteen, David inquired of the Lord, saying, "Shall I go against the Philistines?" And the Lord gives him an answer in verse nineteen: "Go up." So he asked God what he should do in battle. God gives him instruction in verse nineteen. Same thing happens in verse twenty-three. David inquired of the Lord. And he said, you shall not go up directly, uh, circle around behind them and come out them in front of the balsam tree. So God even gives him specific instructions there. He does what the Lord says. And in verse 24, the Lord gave him victory. So David inquired of God before battle. But look at 2 Samuel 8. 2 Samuel 8 is listing... David's victories in battle, his military accomplishments. And he he recognizes that God is the source of all his victories. In verse 6, David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus. And the Arameans became servants of David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. Verse 8. Or verse 6, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 6. Verse 14, he put garrisons in Edom. In all Edom he put garrisons. And against the Edomites, they became servants to David. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. David sought God's help in battle. God gave him victory. And here, as his victories are summarized, God's help is emphasized. The Lord helped David. It could be translated, the Lord saved David wherever he went. So, yes, David was quick to seek God's help in the midst of a crisis and attribute God with success after he had been given um, success. Okay, anything else there? Notice that verse 19 ended on a note that God rescued him because he delighted in him. Uh, Notice that note. Now verses 20 through 24 are going to emphasize this in more detail. Isaiah, I'll let you read that out loud. 20 through 24 of Psalm 18. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Okay. Okay. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. He said that God delighted in him. 
And now he emphasizes this. Is David self-righteous? I, I, I think it says something about our age that we have asked that question so often. But obviously, I don't think that fits here. We have seen that there are qualifications for entering God's presence in Psalm 15. In Psalm 24, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. We will find other Psalms that assert innocence. I think this is emphasizing for those who walk in God's way and do God's will that God keeps His covenant. That God remembers His promises to them. If we remember God, God will remember us in time of crisis. He's rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. I kept His ways. I haven't done wickedly. I haven't departed from Him. And as a result of this, God has recompensed me according to my righteousness. So God has dealt with him because of his faithfulness to the covenant. Verses 25 through 27 show us God's dealing with mankind in general. The text says, With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. But with the crooked, you show yourself astute. For you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. Now, in this passage, in this, in this passage, in this text, The Bible emphasizes with the blameless, you show yourself blameless. That word blameless was used also in verse 23. I was blameless with him. It's used in 25 again, twice. It's going to be used in verse 30 and verse 32. There's another person that was blameless in the Bible that you couldn't tell it by his experiences in Job. The same word is used to describe him in Job 1 and verse 1. And this is my point. This is a general rule. This is not answering every exception or describing every case to us. But generally this is true. With the kind, God shows himself kind. With the blameless, he shows himself blameless. And the Lord is a God who saves those who are afflicted, but those who are proud and haughty, in verse 27, they're abased. The God humbles the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. And here we see the same thing. You save an afflicted person... But the haughty eyes you abase. In verse 28, For you light my lamp, the Lord my God illumines my darkness. I'll tell you one thing I find interesting in the context of 2 Samuel 22. Do you remember when David got into a fight with one of those Philistine giants and the Philistine giant set his eyes on David and said, I'm going to kill him? And you remember Abishai intervened and saved David's life. At the end of that section, the men of Israel say, this is 2 Samuel 21, 
in verse 17, at the end of that section, they say to David, you will not go out again with us to battle that you may not extinguish the lamp of Israel. Now, Second Samuel 21 and verse 17. Not extinguish the lamp of Israel. The people describe David as a lamp, David as a light. But David, in the next chapter, in 2 Samuel 22, in verse 9, says, You are my lamp. Here it says, in Psalm 18, You are my, you light my lamp. But, in other words, what the people say of David is king, David ascribes to the Lord. The Lord is our light. The Lord is our lamp. Psalm 18, verse 29. By you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. I have often thought that that verse is an Old Testament equivalent of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. By you, I can run upon a troop. And by my God, I leap over a wall. The victory of God's people is not won because they are more powerful, but because their God is more powerful. I know we're going very briskly, uh, and I, I'm not trying to skip over other thoughts that you all may have. Anything that you have right here, any thoughts that you want to share? John. Someone pointed out about that verse 28. It says that God illumines his darkness. It doesn't say he takes away his darkness. doesn't say he takes David out of the darkness. But God is his lamp in his darkness. Okay. I think that's... I think that's his guiding light. Right. Yeah. His guiding light in the midst of troubled times. In the midst of, of darkness. The darkness doesn't completely disappear. But, but God is his lamp. That, that burns in the midst of darkness, that shines in the midst of darkness. Okay. At the end of 26, what do you make out of that word at the end? <clears throat> you show yourself, mine says astute, a lot say shrewd. I think this is just a statement. The other three seem to be statements of blessing, and the same term that is used to describe the person kind, blameless, and pure is used to describe God's interaction with them. He's kind, blameless, and pure. There, in the last case, we have a negative example with people who deal with God crookedly and there, uh, the, the word used to describe how God deals with them is not the same. So that's just how it different, differs in some. But, but I just take it that God deals with them um, according to their nature, that this is more of a statement of judgment than hope. 
But 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 more specific than that, I, I don't believe I've gone there. I, does, do you have a thought, or anybody else have a thought about that? Well, he said in in verse nineteen that God brought David into a broad place. Yes. Uh, but down here uh, in twenty six, those who are crooked, God makes it Himself. One version says, "Make yourself seem tortuous." They're crooked. God makes Himself not broad and, but rather twisted or tortured. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, there is a difference. Like, like uh, there is a statement. Like when God rescued me and brought me in a broad place, that word seems to contrast with one of the words used in verse six. And I don't know if it's the word distress, but which seems to emphasize emphasize a really confined place. And He's brought him out into an open place. And and uh, you know, I don't. I'm not naturally. I don't think. Uh, claustrophobic but but when you've been locked up in a short place for about 12 14 hours all of a sudden everybody gets a little bit claustrophobic and uh, we're driving on a bus from the Czech Republic to uh, to England for 26 hours <clears throat> you really start to get claustrophobic um, just kind of re- recollecting an experience there but but that's the idea of being brought to a broad place. Now, I don't know if astute is more of a confined place, too. I don't know. I don't know. if it's, I, I'll try to look up that word and see some other places it's used. You may have to remind me of that, John. But I'll try to look up, I'll try to look up that word specifically and see, where it, see how it's used. In verse 30... Start with verse 30. Notice how he describes God as a source of his strength. In verse 30, as for God, his way is blameless. And the word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock? Except our God. The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You also have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand upholds me in your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me and my feet my feet have not slipped. I think you can see how this kind of imagery as he speaks of God as the source of his strength, this kind of imagery is kind of the is the background of passages like Ephesians six in the, in the warfare of a Christian, there are other passages that are in that background too. Isaiah 59 verse 17 specifically deals with God wearing that armor and, and wearing those things. But notice the parts of the body that are invoked. God makes my feet like hind's feet and sets me on high places. Do you know anything about hind's feet? It's an animal akin to a deer. 
Uh, what about them? Anything about them? They are supposedly very sure-footed on very, uh, very difficult terrain, and most of their most of their battles were probably fought on foot. I mean, they rode horses, they rode chariots at points, but but God makes my feet like hinds feet on high places where just a little misstep may mean death below. God makes His feet secure and firm and stable. And God trains His hands and His arms. He mentions His feet, His hands, His arms. He mentions how He bends a bow of bronze in verse 34. Now, it wasn't normal for bar, for for bows to be made of bronze. Maybe this is just an image for strength that the Lord gives him in conflict. God is the one who holds him up in the midst of conflict and helps him to stand, helps him to stand strong and, and secure. Who is a rock? like our God. Deuteronomy 32 uses that term rock for for God and it also uses it for the gods of the nations and it says at one point in Psalm 32 their rock is not like our rock. The one that they look upon as their strength and their refuge, he's not like ours. When nations won battles, they gave credit to their God. Can you think of cases in the Old Testament where you see other nations win battles and they give credit to their gods? Where do you see examples of that? The Philistines. The Philistines did. In a, in a couple of occasions, what are you thinking of specifically, Boyd? When they stole the ark. Okay, when they stole the ark of the covenant, they believed their gods have given them victory. Also, when they took Saul's, Saul's body, remember, in 1 Samuel 20, 31, they put it in the house of their gods. They put their armor, his armor, in the house of their gods. In, in Judges 16, after they defeated Samson, they said, Our God, Dagon, has given our enemy into our hand. So it's typical after these nations won battles to believe they had won the battle with the strength of their God. That, that's why God is so reluctant to let Israel lose a battle. And, and that is why when God's people are unfaithful to Him and they lose a battle, God is actually allowing His name to be drugged through the mud. To bring his people back to him. But God is the source of his strength. Samson didn't win his victories because of his own innate power, but because of God's strength. And verses 37 through 45 deal with his complete victory over his foes. In verse 37, I pursued my enemies and overtook them. 
I did not turn back until they are consumed. I shattered them so they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. Verse 40, you've also made my enemies turn their backs to me and I'll destroy those who hated me. Do any of your translations have anything different than turn their backs? Retreat. Retreat is what it has? Okay. Do any of your translations have a reference to necks at that point? Yes. Is that what it says? In what translation is that, Brad? Well, that's a footnote that I have on the ESV. Okay. Footnote of the ESV. Remember, sometimes when Israel defeated their foe, they put their enemy on their, ne- their, their feet on their necks. Joshua 10, verse 24. Um, verse 41. They cried for help, but there was none to say. For the Lord... Even to the Lord, but He did not answer them. Then I beat them as the dust before the wind, emptied them out as the mire of the streets. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You placed me as head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners fade Away and come trembling out of their fortresses. Okay, I pursued my enemies, I overtook them. What you'll notice in verses 37 through 45 is there is a shift constantly going on between I and you. He describes what I did to my enemies, but ultimately he keeps coming back to the fact that you have done this. It's you who given victory. In verses 37 and 38, He uses the term I, first person singular. But then in verse 39 and 40, he uses the term you. While he pursued his enemies, it's God who has girded him with strength. It's God who has subdued his foes. Did you notice in verse 41 that in the midst of this battle, it says they cried for help. But there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer. That statement in verse 6 is the opposite, or verse verse 41 is the opposite of verse 6. In verse 6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord, cried to my God for help. He heard my voice, and my cry for before Him came into His ears. So he heard, God heard His cry, and God answered Him. Now this one cries, and God doesn't answer Now, verse 41, does this indicate that his enemies were Israelites because they called on the name of Israel's God and he didn't rescue? Or is this a case that when the enemy is about to be killed, he calls upon God's name hoping he'll find mercy because his own gods had been unable to deliver? Whatever the case, they're not answered cried to God and he didn't answer and God beat them as fine as dust and peoples who haven't known him are are submitting to him and coming out and falling and trembling before him 
What else do you see? Anything? His final statement of praise is verses 46 through 50. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift up Lift me up above those who rise against me. You rescue me from the violent men. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord. I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to the king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. The term rock has been used of the Lord in verse 2, verse 31. In verse 46, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. And that's been set to music, as you know. God executes vengeance. God subdues peoples. God delivers him from enemies. And he will give praise to God. Often Psalm 18 is characterized as a royal psalm. It's characterized as a royal psalm because royal psalms are psalms that deal with the king. And I remember one book um, that I had some students use in teaching the psalm stated that three key vocabulary words in identifying a royal psalm are the term king, the term anointed, and the term David. Did you notice that the last verse of this psalm uses all three of them? He uses the term king. He grants deliverance to his king. He shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants. Now there are other factors that go into identifying royal psalms. For example, like here, it seems like the person that's being discussed all throughout the psalm leads an army into battle. This is a royal psalm even without the words of that last verse. But the last verse kind of cements that. And what, what again, I'm defining royal psalm simply a psalm in which the key human character uh, is the key. That he is front and center in these psalms. I recognize we, we run, ran over that really, really quickly because I was trying to get all of that in one night. It is one of the longer psalms. It is the longest by far we've covered. But I don't want to miss the important points that we like to make at the end. How, how does this psalm deal with Jesus? Now, it, particularly if this is a royal psalm that deals with David and his descendants we would really think there's going to be something here to connect to Jesus what points did you have 
we'll call this Psalm 18 and Jesus. I know some of you are sitting there thinking, where do you come up with titles week after week? Because <laughs> you just came up last week with Psalm 17 and Jesus. And it, I grant it, you know, it, it's a skill not everyone can develop. But, um, John? How about verse 43, uh, where it says, um, You have placed me as the head of the nations of people I have not known serve me. Okay. Makes me think about the, 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 God's outreach through Jesus to yeah. all nations, and he and he's king over all nations. We're gonna we're gonna list that in a second. What other things do you see? It remind us if we if we're hesitant to. What what other things? Again, think of the description of the psalmist distress, and as. David is delivered from a near-death experience, what we would describe as a near-death experience. It foreshadows Jesus' deliverance from death. Here are these kings that are in the midst of battle and, and there's their enemies focusing on them and seeking to kill them, seeking to bring about their destruction. And God intervenes at the last moment and brings salvation. Is it any surprise the disciples would draw their sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and try to fight for Jesus? thinking that that will be the same kind of situation. But this king is not going to be delivered from death, but he's going to be delivered through death. Because he is an enemy. He is a king who gives victory not over their physical foes, but over the greatest of foes, sin and death. And when Jesus did this, when he was delivered from death, you remember how, first of all, when he died on the cross, the earth quaked in Matthew chapter 27. Is it Matthew 27? It, it begins at 51. I'm just going to say 51 through 54 because I know that encompassed, is compassed there. And then when Jesus is raised, the earth shakes as well. And so when he is delivered from death, All creation is thrown into convulsions. The earth is shaking. It is quaking. Uh, It is a dramatic uh, and powerful event. Um, I'm trying to come to these things as the text does. and And I may not be going the most logical order. But you notice that David declares his righteousness. That was only in a relative term in verses 20 through 24. Jesus 
is absolutely sinless. There is no spot. There is no flaw in Jesus. He is sinless. So while David declares his righteousness and God has dealt with him because of this, Jesus is absolutely sinless. And just as a text said that talks about David's victory over his enemies, we could see Christ's victory over the his. We see that in many passages. For example, Colossians 2, verses 14 through 17, talks about how Christ has been triumphant over His foes in death. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, speaks of Christ on a white horse as being a warrior who brings deliverance. Christ is pictured as the divine warrior. And then what John stated there in verses like 43, that that Jesus is king of all nations. Go therefore... And teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and baptize them. Go teach them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things. Whatever I've commanded you. You see that in verse 43. I've seen, and, and I'd love to see it again. Because I've, I've lost the copy of this. But a couple of times I have seen on the internet people showing these charts of at what period, in New Testament times, what Rome ruled over. And at various points in world history, nations that have given their allegiance to Christ. Now, we're not to judge who are his people who are not. The point is. Christ ruled a far greater domain than Caesar ever did. Now, what else have I missed? Is there anything? I mean, there are other specifics I'm sure we could tie in. But but these are some... Mary, did you have a thought? Um, the darkness... Okay, you could connect some of the specifics, just like the earthquake. Yeah, that's good. I would. I'll just put this in this category. Things like the darkness, just like God's presence is associated with darkness here. His presence on the cross is associated with darkness. It's very good. Um, very good point. John, it's the word at the end of number one. Yeah. What? Uh, <clears throat> um, God? That miss. Okay. Okay. Wait. Wait. Erase God. The whole. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I thought surely I spelled God correct. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. Shoot. I feel better. Well, I, that, I I should have corrected that. I'm sorry. But um, God delivered him from death. You know, so. David describes uh, God as appearing to him in his life in these poetic forms. You know, earthquake, mm-hmm. volcano, storm. Uh, Jesus is the 
in the in the flesh the appearance of God to man. Yes, absolutely. He is, he is our theophany. A- absolutely, yes, that's right. An appearance of God, theophany. He he is. Now, there's one thing we've missed so far. Uh, did you have a comment, Bob? Or no? There's one place that Psalm 18 is quoted in the New Testament that we and we haven't talked about this. You know where it is quoted. It's verse 49. It is quoted in Romans 15, verse 9. Now, Romans 15, verses 7 through 13 ties together about four Old Testament passages that speak of Gentiles. It uses Psalm 117, it uses Isaiah 11, it uses this passage in Psalm 18, and it uses one more. It uses at least one more. But my point in the context of Psalm 18, it seems like the idea is that David wins victory over these Gentiles by conquering them in battle. And the New Testament picks up that picture of Jews and Gentiles praising God together after Jesus conquers Gentiles by giving them salvation. David conquered them by defeating them in battle and they come out cringing before him. Jesus defeats them in the sense that they come bowing before him looking for mercy and Jesus gives them salvation and grace and mercy. Just think about that. It's deeper than we can summarize in just a second. Now, Brad, did, were you giving a, by Brad a song of Psalm 18? Yeah, and you know, this is longer, so it was actually set to the tune of the new song. Um, you know, no, I'm joking. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I did think the Lord is a warrior is a good song to go with. There, there are several songs that go with it, like the Lord liveth. Okay, I didn't know. I mean, he he had asked me about. Uh, do you think we'll get it all in one night? He seemed very nervous about that possibility and finding a song that we could uh, cover in one night. Um, but thank you for being a part of this and studying it with me. I. Um, I feel like I've got plenty of work to do personally on this psalm to get a better feel of it as a whole and to do better teaching it. But thank you for your willingness to come and to be a part of it. And.